It is always a great blessing indeed to be able to participate in spirited singing and the praying, praying if you will, unto God. The marvelous understanding and the great privilege, it's ours. One of the most famous slogans, I suppose, of Brother Keeble for many years in the past was their appreciation of the privilege that's ours to simply be called the children of God and, in fact, to be able to wear the name Christian. As we're gathered together this morning, probably you've already noted in the bulletin, but also now on the wall to my left, that the title I've given to the lesson today has to do with singing praises. And the text that was read was from the 47th Psalm, verses 6 and 7 of that most noble and majestic chapter. Over the next few moments this morning, somewhat tying in to the songs that Brother Harold just led for us to consider, I would ask that we devote a few moments of attention and appreciate the wonder of music in the assemblies of the church. In fact, as one considers the role and the occupation that music plays in the assemblies of the church, I think it fair to say that there's very little, if any, disagreement on the fact music does have a position and a component in regard to the activities of the church and public worship. When we gather, be it on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, one of the things in which we participate is that of a type of music. As one considers that music, though, four questions almost immediately come to mind. And I've listed those because they will, in fact, be that which leads us through the remainder of our lesson this morning. What is the purpose of music in worship? Does the Bible touch that subject, and does it share any considerations that lead to the answer to that question? Why do we include music? But secondly, what type music, if there's any restriction at all? We, as we consider those notions and ideas, will again seek to allow God to answer those questions for us. In the third place, who is to participate in the music of the church in regard to its worship? Do the scriptures say, are there any limitations? Maybe finally, in what way or how should a person participate in the music of the church? It would be my hope that over the next few moments this morning, we can allow the Word of God to help us not only answer these in general, but to also answer them in detail, specifying the, the things that God has detailed in His Word. And so let's look at those one at a time, and I think that they're in a proper order as well. After all, if we don't, do not know the purpose of music and worship, it's highly unlikely that we will participate in it in the way that we should and, for the, in, in fact, for the instructional purposes that go along with it. So first of all, would you consider with me that opening question, what is the purpose of music and worship? What is the purpose of incorporating that to, in fact, consume a few of the moments that involve itself in a worship service? There are some who might assert, well, it's for the purpose of variety. After all, those who are in the audience have to put up with someone like myself speaking for some amount of time, perhaps. Or perhaps they also are in a position of prayer. Some might be quick to say, well, surely the music is just there for variety. To allow folks to become enthusiastic about something. I might assert that we shall find that's not the reason for the inclusion of music and worship. Others might assert that the reason to include it is because it allows various ones to express talents and skills and gifts in regard to one or more aspects of music. We shall also find that too is not the reason. In fact, as we seek to consider why music has a role to play in worship, one of the first things to, in fact, appreciate most notably 
is that of the character of worship itself. Worship is a commanded activity. In Matthew 4, verse 10, the very lip, from the very lips of our Savior, He uttered these words, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Might we notice again, Thou shalt worship? Here the Lord was uttering a very principled and very dramatic need in the life of humanity. Every person is going to worship someone or something. And the Bible prescribes for us who the object of worship actually is supposed to be. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Notice also how that harmonizes with another statement from the lips of our Savior. In John 4, 24, he said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The discussion that led to that statement by Jesus was in his discussion with a Samaritan woman. In fact, she first brought up the subject, are we to worship here or in some places that the Jews perhaps have prescribed? It was then Jesus said, I'm telling you that God seeks such to worship him. And he says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Given the notion then that worship is such a central aspect of our relationship to God, might we never forget even in the Old Testament how thoroughly that idea was prescribed. What was to be the centerpiece among the encampment of Israel? There were these large 12 tribes, and we might well remember that they numbered well into the millions, but that which stood at the very center of the encampment was the tabernacle. It was to be the centerpiece of their existence. They were to look to it for worship on a daily basis as they considered their relationship to God. They were to understand that that which was in it, the holy place and the most holy place, were emblematic of God's presence with them. Might we note then today that worship, even as we're gathered now, is not just a consumption of an hour or two out of the week. It is to really be a fundamental, important aspect of our existence who you and I are in our journey through this life. But in addition to that comment, might we notice that, it, that just as surely as worship is commanded, music is a prescribed part of worship. And we are now coming very close to our answer. Worship is not, does not include music just because I prefer it, or the elders at Pippin prefer it, or because, in fact, we like to introduce some variety into the worship, or because we want some to illustrate their talent and gift in music. Those reasons are utterly useless. In fact, could we not say that if the God of heaven hasn't authorized it, if He has not given approval for it to be included, then it's not to be included. It does not have the approval of heaven. And so might we notice music is especially stated in both Old and New Testament to be a part of worship. In Psalm 96 verse 2, sing unto the Lord. That direct commandment was given. It was to be a part of their relationship to God as they met and as they worshiped and as they assembled. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 19, in the New Testament, can we not remember Paul addressing the church in Ephesus and said, speaking to yourselves, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Do we again see there was a congregation of the New Testament people. As Paul addressed them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he made reference to the fact they spoke to themselves, 
But how so? In psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, what mechanism? Singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Here is music as a part of New Testament worship, fully authorized by the God of heaven and powerfully inserted into the nature of New Testament worship. It has nothing to do with preferences of men. It has nothing to do with that which we might prefer. It has all the foundation of approval of heaven. But not only that, I've listed some other verses there for you to consider. The matter is, God is to be praised. The Bible commands praise, be delivered, be directed, be in fact sent toward the God of heaven. Music is one of the means by which you and I can offer acceptable praise unto the God of heaven. I've listed several passages. In Psalm 106, verse 1, the opening sentence of that chapter has four words in it. Praise ye the Lord. Isn't God worthy to be praised? Isn't He majestic and mighty enough to be praised as Almighty God, Creator, Everlasting Father, the very One who has made provision for my salvation and yours? He is to be praised. Paul, in fact, in the New Testament, in Romans 15, 11, there said, Gentiles, praise ye the Lord. Laud ye all His people. That word laud reminds you and me that we should have a heart filled with thanksgiving for all that God has done for us, that which He continues to do on our behalf, and we should ever be ready to understand the glorious goodness of praising His wonderful name. And music is one of the ways He has authorized us to do that. Notice in Psalm 28, verse 7, as well as Psalm 40, verse 3, we notice even in the Old Testament statements to the fact that God is our strength and shield, and furthermore, because of the fact we have a heart filled with rejoicing, we sing praises to Him. There's the motivation for our singing. God has authorized it, but the motivation is we have a heart that's thankful for all that God has done. That's why we sing. That's why we enjoy participating in it. When we come together and sing as we have already this morning, it's not an arbitrary exercise just to, in fact, consume a portion of the worship hour because we have hearts filled with rejoicing, hearts filled with thanksgiving. We're happy and glad that we can, in fact, sing praises unto God. But, in fact, there is another aspect of singing that is mentioned in Colossians 3, verse 16. Could you, in fact, direct a brief moment of attention to that lovely text with me? In Colossians 3.16, addressing the church in Colossae, Paul, in fact, made this observation. He said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Notice with me, if you would, that singing has an aspect of teaching and admonishing. Sometimes, maybe we're too often forgetful of that fact. When we sing, we're teaching other people. We're admonishing them in the way of righteousness. We're encouraging them and edifying them in the pathway to eternal glory. Singing is not just a benefit for me to praise God. A secondary benefit is that it teaches other people. It, as they hear the words that I'm singing and the heartfelt aspect with which I sing, they can appreciate that my heart is in that and that I believe the words of those songs that are being sung. Singing has that teaching component to it. 
That leads me to make the very last statement on that sheet. Thus, in answer to our first question, the reason that music is a part of worship is first because God has authorized it. He has asserted from heaven that it is to be included as a part of worship. And the reason we sing is because of our hearts being filled with praise and gladness unto God and the joy that's ours to instruct others in the wonderful things we have found. But what about the second question? Notice it related to the matter of what type music should we engage in. Quite frankly, there are many in our world who would say this is not an important question. There are many in our world who would say the type music is irrelevant and it's immaterial. All that matters is if one's heart is sincere in that which he's doing, if one is earnest in that which he is singing. I would state to you that before we accept that, we should confirm it with the Scripture. We should, in fact, search diligently the Word of God and ask if He has anywhere specified the kind or type of music, then that settles it. Might we and thus turn our attention to that? And might we do so with the opening matter of the word of authority? As we understand God's presentation of authority all throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament alike, we come to realize with pinpoint clarity that for God, authority is an important issue. In the Old Testament, when the prophets were not given authority to do various and sundry things, they refrained from them. When the earlier members of the Old Testament were not given by express authority of heaven the approval to engage in certain activity, that activity was condemned. Can we not remember the case of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 3? Here were two sons of Aaron. They had, in fact, before them the obligation to aid in the carrying on of worship. That was fully authorized by God. But the way that they did it was not. They took fire that he had not commanded, and they proceeded with the worship just as they otherwise would have. But the fact that they used a matter, a means, that he had not commanded, God struck them dead on the spot. Fire from heaven leapt forward from heaven, and they were consumed. I might submit then that just because God has authorized music, he may well have authorized specifically a kind of music. And if so, that's the only kind that he has approved. The matter of authority is highlighted, in fact, in the words of Jesus in Mark 11, verses 27 and following. In that text and on that occasion, the Lord was asked a very good question. In fact, those who were in his audience, these who were Pharisaical and Jewish in their background, asked Jesus, the baptism of John, as that question was asked, whence was it, of heaven or from men? When Jesus asked that question to those in the audience, how did they respond? We might well notice in their response, they understood the thoroughness of the question. When Jesus asked them that, he asserted there's only two possible sources of authority. One is men, one is heaven. I would submit then that we ought never be guilty of using the authority of men in any aspect of our service to God. That includes music. Where then has God specified the type of music He prefers? May I submit to you that a number of the verses we've already read touch that subject and do so with great clarity. Might I ask you to notice just a few of the things about the authority of the New Testament? 
The authority vested in the New Testament thus answers our question concerning the type or kind of music. We do not look to conferences of men. We do not seek synods or other types of discussions in which men vote to determine what kind of music is allowed. We look within the 27 books of God's New Testament and we understand the absolute authority of God vested in those New Testament scriptures. And so it is with that notion I would ask you to recall 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Paul told the Corinthians, do not go beyond what is written. Do not go beyond what is written. That which they found authorized then in the pages of God's New Testament was the absolute boundary. There was to be no going beyond it and yet appreciate the approval of heaven. In 2 John verse 9, we notice again a very interesting and powerful apprehension. The Apostle John thus asserted, Whosoever transgresseth and goeth onward abideth not in the doctrine of Christ. Goeth onward? That is to say, a boundary is prescribed. Those who transgress by going beyond it, by seeking approval of that which God has not approved, by seeking to employ that which He has never authorized, they have stepped up beyond the boundary. And John says they're guilty of transgression. It is those two concepts and ideas that lead us to then notice in the New Testament verses like this one. It's the same one we noted earlier. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. How so, John, or how so, Paul? Teaching and admonishing one another. How do we do that, Paul? Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. We have a direct scriptural reference to the word singing. And in Greek, that literally is the meaning. It does not mean to play an instrument. It does not mean, in fact, to employ any mechanical device. In the Greek language, there was a specific word for sing, just like there is in English. And that's the word that's employed on that occasion. God is authorizing the usage of singing. And the loveliness of it is one sings psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As one does that, there's instruction of, of others, there's admonishment of others, and interestingly enough, all of that is done to the Lord. The realization of that verse is only extended forward when one looks at Hebrews 13, 15. When we remember that it is by Christ that we offer the sacrifice of praise to God. And how is that done? The fruit of our lips offering praise unto His name the fruit of our lips, that which emanates from a heart filled with praise and is expressed vocally in the form of singing. That concept seems very concrete, doesn't it? Suppose we consider Ephesians 5.19 and note the sister way that it's presented. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord. The realized beauty of again, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, not that they're spoken, but he says singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It is the absolute beauty of the appreciation. God has specified singing in these two verses. And in fact, there's eight times in the New Testament that music and worship on earth is mentioned. And in all eight instances, singing is what is described. There's not a single exception. 
isn't that strong emphasis on the fact of what God has emphasized and what he has approved and what he has authorized from heaven? Can we not then see that if God has not authorized other types, other varieties of music, that must mean they extend beyond the boundary and thus fall under the characteristic of sin? Again, 2 John, verse number 9, For whoever goes beyond does not reside in the doctrine of Christ. That, in fact, points very clearly that we must take seriously the mode in which we include music in worship. Just any music will not do. It has to be the kind that God has authorized, and that is vocal music, singing, in which we employ words to express thoughts that others can understand, and in that way they are taught and they are admonished. But in addition to that, what about our third question? So far, we have learned the importance of music. It's included because God said so. And the type music that God has specified stops with singing. Our third question had to do with who is to participate in the music of worship? There are some very good questions that some in the world today tend to ask relative to this thought. They will bring up subjects like and touch matters like choirs and choruses and praise groups and assembly organizations that are some subset of the church as a whole and ask, can these, in fact, participate and carry on the music and worship while the others are spectators, while the others watch and just listen? I thought that question is sufficiently pertinent that we should, in fact, address that too in light of the subject before us today. Who is to participate in the singing of worship? In Ephesians 5.19 and in Colossians 3.16, those answers are already given. Let's, in fact, revisit them again. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord. Might we again note the language? How does the verse begin for us? Speaking to yourselves? Who is the object? This is the church of Ephesus. As they spoke to themselves, let's read onward. They, in fact, had the obligation, the duty, the responsibility to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs as they made melody in their hearts unto the Lord. Does there seem to be a statement of exclusion of various and sundry members of the congregation? As we hold that question in mind, I would submit that the Colossians text seems even stronger in regard to that answer. Let's notice how it begins. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Paul here utters a commandment. The word of Christ was to be allowed to dwell richly in the hearts of the congregation at Colossae. Now might we ask, who is to have the word of Christ dwelling in them richly? Only certain members of the church or all of the church? Next idea in the verse, teaching and admonishing one another. Who is to teach? Is that for a selected few in the church or is that for all of us as Christians with God's obligation to teach others? Nextly, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing with grace in your heart unto the Lord. I might submit in light of the way that verse is presented, the same ones are to sing are the very ones who is to have the word of Christ dwelling in their heart richly. Certainly that then is for all the Christians at Colossae. We do not find any authorization for a choir or a chorus that performs during worship while others are spectators. 
that is outside the bounds of what God has authorized. All of us have an obligation to praise the Lord and to do so in song and to do so with a heartfelt recognition of all the blessings that God has provided and given to us. Thus, we are not to be spectators in singing. That certainly helps us appreciate that God hasn't stated I have to be able to sing like the great performers at the Carnegie Hall because I can't and I never will be able to. But I can praise God and so can you with a heart that's filled with appreciation and do the best that I am able to do with a talented voice that God has given me. All of us stand on an equal footing in that way, do we not? And notice, too, that all of us thus have that obligation and that commandment to, to sing and to participate. I suppose the question could be asked from another perspective. We know that there are five authorized activities in worship. There is the giving. There is the participation in the Lord's Supper. There is the singing. There is the praying. And there is the observation of instruction by way of preaching. Could we ask it this way? Can another person take the Lord's Supper for me? Can another person contribute for me? Can another individual, in fact, pray for me in the sense of so I don't have to? The answer is obvious. All of us stand equally before judgment, at, before the God of heaven, and we'll give an answer for what I've done. Another person can't take the Lord's Supper for me while I stay at home or while I just sit and watch. And the same thing is true of singing. Another person can't sing on my behalf or accomplish my desired singing before God. Our participation in the song service is a very significant thing. And it's a very beautiful thing to consider the blended voices of those whose hearts are filled with love for the God of heaven. As you proceed near the closing part of that particular slide, sometimes each of us approach the singing service in a way that perhaps we should revisit. Again, recollecting that this is a commanded part of our worship unto God. It is not optional just like the other four parts of worship are not. And I suspect that does lead us to the final question this morning and one that we'll use to close our lesson today. Our final question had to do with how should I participate in singing? How should we? as those desirous of being pleasing to God, participate in the song service of the church. I might submit that there are several guidelines that are provided, and might we look at these in the order that, that, we have, that I've stated them. We first of all can understand, 1 Corinthians 14.40 reminds us that this, as well as all other parts of worship, is to be done decently and in order. God has given us no license, thus, as a congregation, for each person to sing in his or her own individual way to produce a chaotic, difficult thing to understand. Remember, song service is to teach and to admonish. If all 70 of us are singing different songs at the same time, how is anyone going to understand what we're singing? It must be done in order, and it must be done with decency. And so it is that we appreciate the orderly means that God would have us to sing. But notice, we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We have been given no license to sing songs that encourage worldly things, carnal matters of the flesh. That has no place in worship. But we are to sing songs that praise God, encourage each other, and lift high the great name of the Savior and the work of the church. 
All of that would be appropriate spiritual kind of singing. In the next case, could we not notice that our singing, mine and yours, is to be done with spirit. It is not just a habitual, ritualistic thing that consumes a little bit of time each Sunday. Jesus again said, They that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. As God is worshipped, then one of the aspects and components is our spirit. A degree of enthusiasm, an energy and an emotion because we're excited about what we're able to do. That enthusiasm and that energy is only compounded when we appreciate Paul's affirmation in 1 Corinthians 14, 15. On that occasion, he said, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding. Thus, we should desire to sing with Spirit, with a degree of energy and enthusiasm, a comprehension and an understanding, which is, in fact, the next comment that I have highlighted. These songs that we sing, they are comprised of words, of course, and those words have meaning. In, this, in the sense that those songs are to be spiritual songs, hymns and, and psalms of the Old Testament, we can then see that those words should be appreciated by us so that we can fully comprehend and fully understand the message and the meaning of those words. Paul stated it in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and it was a part of the text read earlier today for the lesson text in Psalm 47. There, they were commanded to sing with understanding. Might I encourage all of us to do the same as we sing from time to time our worships and appreciate that those words preach some of the grandest of lessons to be found anywhere. As we sing with understanding, we thus come near the close of our lesson this morning by revisiting in a brief way the four things that we have seen from the Word of God. That music is a part of worship, and it's that way because God has commanded it. But not just any music, it is singing. The vocal expression of words, expressive of ideas and sentences, that is what God has demanded and what He continues to expect. We furthermore came to realize that in that singing it is to be done by all participating. And finally, it is to be accomplished by the interesting character of decently, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with understanding and with spirit. That means we need to participate with the lovely sense of the privilege that's ours in being Christians. May we thus sing with joy in our hearts, peace in our spirits, and a desire to one day sing around the grand, glorious throne of God forever. And it's that last idea that leads me to conclude the lesson this morning. Do you and I enjoy it when we have the opportunity to lift up our voices in song? Do we look forward to those opportunities as expressions of the feelings of our being? I might submit that poses a very interesting question. Given the presentation of the book of Revelation, that one of the aspects and features of all eternity will be the worship of God and His Son forevermore by those who are granted the entrance to heaven. If I don't enjoy worship here, if I don't enjoy singing and participating here, should I really expect God's going to let me go to heaven and there have to do that for an eternity? I'll close the lesson with that question that begs all of us to seriously contemplate. What do we look forward to? What's the highlight of our week? 
Is it those worship services where we can meet together with brothers and sisters in Christ and offer the heartfelt appreciation to God? The Bible helps us see, doesn't it, that worship is not just an arbitrary activity. It was so important in the Old Testament that they had a tabernacle in the very center of the encampment. It's so important for us in the New Testament era. It should be the very centerpiece of our linkage to God. How then are you linked to God this morning? Is the worship service something that is a bright part of your week? Something that in fact sets the week rightly? And you seek never to miss those services if there's any way possible to be there. That should be all of our approaches. That should be what means the most to us. For when we're present there, we are nearest to God. We are nearest to those who love Him. And we're nearest to the very things that bring Him honor and glory. This very day, we have then the opportunity to ask ourselves about our examination in faith. Where do you stand and where do I stand? If we need to make changes, today's the day to do it. In fact, today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. If you've never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, you are at this point, then outside the ark, the rim of safety. You need to come to His loving side and do so in the way He has commanded. Believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Come before Him making confession audibly of His name as the Son of God and then be baptized. The waters behind me are prepared and ready. Baptism could be accomplished in just a few moments. At that point, the Lord adds you to His church, Acts 2.47. If we could be of assistance in the accomplishment of that, how lovely a day it would be for you. If though you have become a Christian but no longer are faithful, for one reason or another, worship has ceased to be meaningful to you. You have long since perhaps reached the point of thinking it's just a boring activity. It's just something to take up a little time. Begin at once to use God's Word to change that attitude and let worship again be the meaningful activity that God has stated it should be. Today, if we could be of assistance in praying for your rededication to the cause of Christ, for strength for you to in fact be stronger in the faith, let us in fact aid in that way while together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>